Hey, it's Sarah. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. On today's episode, I talked to two community leaders who have won many awards using different approaches to combating poverty, crime, and education for kids in divested neighborhoods. They both work in Chicago, but their insight and their solutions are applicable to so many different places. So I hope you enjoy it and take a minute to subscribe to the show while you're at it. Rate it. Five stars would be nice. Uh, and leave a review if you can. Before we get to today's episode, I want to tell you about another great ESPN podcast, The Mina Kimes Show, featuring Lenny. That is her dog. This week, Mina chats with former Pro Bowl safety and Super Bowl champ Ryan Clark. He's the best. That's got to be a great conversation. You can find The Mina Kimes Show featuring Lenny wherever you get your podcasts. The perfect hire can have an impact on your business for years to come. So when you need to find that next person to help grow your business, LinkedIn Jobs will match the right talent with your open role fast. LinkedIn has over 675 million members worldwide, which means they're able to screen candidates with the hard and soft skills you're looking for, so you can hire the right person fast. Things like collaboration, creativity, adaptability. LinkedIn looks beyond the work skills and puts your job post in front of qualified candidates who can match your business requirements perfectly. That's how LinkedIn makes sure your job post is seen by the people you want to hire, people with the skills, qualifications, and other interests that will help your business grow. It's no wonder a person is hired every eight seconds with LinkedIn and why companies rate LinkedIn jobs the number one hiring platform for delivering quality hires. Find the right person for your business today with LinkedIn jobs. You can pay what you want and get the first $50 off. Just visit LinkedIn.com slash Sarah. Again, that's LinkedIn.com slash Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. This week is a special supersized pod featuring two leaders in the Chicago community who are trying to change the face of education and the ways we deal with poverty and crime affecting our young people. They both work in Chicago, but their discussions, their solutions, uh, what they're working on can be applied to cities across the country and beyond, understanding the ways in which our curriculums don't serve all or set up students for success in the real world, the ways we react to criminal acts that are done out of desperation, hunger, or poverty, how we can prevent them, or even adjust the way we punish and rehab the people who commit them. And now more than ever, I think it's good to be talking about how we need to connect and come together, understand each other, and talk instead of fighting from our keyboards and isolating ourselves, interacting only with those who sound like us and look like us, um, or even demonizing people with different backgrounds and lived experiences. Both of these men that I spoke to grew up in poverty but had different experiences. Imran, a child of immigrants whose mom used to send him to school with an onion and a turmeric bandage instead of a regular Band-Aid, uh, and what it meant for him to try to fit in. And Jamal, who actually grew up thinking a food stamp was real U.S. currency until a certain age. So their experiences have totally informed their views and inspired their work and the different ways they're approaching this. I hope hearing from them and their different perspectives on the problems that we face both in Chicago and around the country opens your eyes and inspires you to help out in your own communities, reach out to new people, advocate for useful change and the experiential learning that they both promote. That's what she said. I'm Imran Khan, and my dilemma is that the prime minister of Pakistan is ruining my Google search results. Okay, so search engine optimization is super important, and I imagine it would be really cool if people weren't searching for the Embark founder and coming up with a former international cricketer turned Pakistani PM, so I understand your problem. Uh, my only solution is to hope that people Google Imran Khan Embark instead of just your name. 
And also, you know, take heed in the fact that the guy who shares your name is at least so distant from you that most people won't make the mistake of confusing you. They'll probably get that result and think, nah, that's probably not him. Also, there's a girl in my industry who shares a name with an adult film star. So, you know, as far as Google mishaps go, it could definitely be worse. The commish has spoken. My name is Jamal Cole. My dilemma is Chicago wasn't designed for everybody to be inspired. It's hard to be inspired when kids don't have a Wi-Fi and they got to use McDonald's to use the Internet. It's hard to be inspired when you have to order your breakfast through bulletproof glass windows. It's hard to be inspired when there's 15 currency exchanges in your community and no banks. We need people to rethink how Chicago is designed, and I'm all for that. Oh, Jamal, you know what? I, I got to turn this one right back to you. I'm going to have to be the Robin to your Batman because you are tackling this very issue in your book. It's not regular. And the only way to fix this dilemma, I guess, is to get folks to buy it and to visit Chicago's neighborhoods and see for themselves how things need to change, how investments need to be made. It really is a dilemma. And I'm hoping this podcast will inspire listeners to take action in their communities, to read your book, and to learn more about how they can help make a difference. The commission has spoken. My guests today are Imran Khan, a former Chicago public school teacher who's the founder and CEO of Embark, the nation's only teacher-led organization that advances student academic success through systematic long-term social and cultural exposure via partnerships with businesses and cultural institutions throughout the city. Understanding that laws, policies, and infrastructure have historically been designed to keep low-income communities from attaining a better quality of life, Embark uses experiential learning to motivate and teach inner-city youth. I'm proud to say I've been on the Ox board for Embark for a number of years. Imran is super inspiring. He received the prestigious Ashoka Fellowship. It's a lifelong investment and partnership, which only about 200 people in the U.S. have been given for their work as a systems-changing leader. I think you're going to learn a lot from him. My other guest, Jamal Cole, is the founder and CEO of My Block, My Hood, My City, which provides underprivileged youth with an awareness of the world and the opportunities that are beyond their own neighborhoods by giving them experiences and explorations around the city. He's also the author of a new book, It's Not Regular, How to Recognize Injustice in Plain Sight. The book uses photos and scenes from daily life to illustrate how people are so used to the poor conditions in their communities, they don't even realize that it's a problem, that it's not normal. Uh, he's earned a bunch of honors, including Crane's Chicago 40 Under 40 and being named a Chicagoan of the Year by Chicago Magazine. Uh, let's start with my conversation with Imran, who's approaching issues of education and poverty and opportunity through the lens of academia. That's what she said. I'm so excited to introduce Imran Khan to people who do not know him and have not heard him speak or worked with him. He, uh, as you heard in the bio, founder and CEO of Embark, which I've been on the board for for a number of years now. So I've had the great pleasure of hearing him address crowds and talk at Chicago Ideas Week and, and spread the good word of the things he's doing. And I love the balance of our two guests today and the way that they approach similar problems, which... um and how, you know, it takes all kinds and, and people who are coming from an academic background or a community background or whatever else. And so uh, I want to start, Imran, by talking about your family and your your sort of early education and childhood and how um, we'll later get to how that led you to embark. But let's just start flat out with, with your, your family being from India and how that affected you as a kid. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, so my family... We're immigrants from India, and uh, when they were going to the airport um, and tried to come to the United States, they were planning on heading to Seattle, and uh, the flight to Chicago was leaving earlier, so that's how we got here. And uh, <laughs> when they landed in the airport, um, the first thing they did was go to a, 
old white pages and try to find an, an apartment. And uh, they went to some place. They just found, they put their finger on something. They called them up and they were like, yes, we have an apartment available. The next morning they woke up and uh, as they were walking out right outside of the house, um, some neighbor walked by and said, oh, hey, where are you guys living? And they said, oh, we're living in this building. And they said, oh, you're living in the halfway house? Huh. So apparently my parents ended up uh, showing up to the United States and their first uh, month here was uh, living in the halfway house. And uh, I think they, my dad said, that explains all the yelling in the middle of the night. <laughs> um, so one of the main things that I took away from sort of my up, up, upbringing mostly is uh, this sort of um, fearlessness and exploration that has brought my family to this country and, and it has a lot to do with what what I'm doing here in the city. And growing up, you know, uh, Chicago was pretty diverse in part of the areas that I was in. There were a lot of immigrants in the Lakeview neighborhood. And then we eventually went into the Jefferson Park neighborhood. And my block was full of, you know, I had, I had some Hispanic people around. I had some Eastern European folks. Um, I had some uh, Asian people around. And then and then also Indian. The strange thing was, uh, that you would think that everybody would be so kind and get along, but I remember growing up having to uh, fight quite a bit, explaining to everyone why my coat and jacket smelled so delicious of curry every single day. <laughs> um, but they could smell me coming down the hallway away, but I, I, I realized now that as I got older and I, um, that all those feelings I had growing up about, like, you know, just wishing that I uh, I had a bologna sandwich when I came to school. Uh, just wishing that, like, uh, my mom did not tie an onion uh, and a bunch of turmeric onto my hand uh, as a <laughs> place of a Band-Aid. And uh, I had to see why everybody else was wearing Spider-Man Band-Aids, and I had this onion <laughs> basically tied by a fabric onto my arm. Um, and so there was a lot of... A lot of turmoil I went through when I was younger, wanting to be like others and fit in. And then you finally, as you start getting older, I started to realize um, how much pride and power there is in being who you are and in your identity and embracing it and understanding it and utilizing it as a, as a lover to bring people in and to share something with them and, and to be interesting. Um, and, you know, it's, I think it has a lot of it has to do with where I ended up in my journey here as an educator and a teacher. But I remember growing up as well, we were pretty poor. Um, we had, I, one of my earliest memories is of finding our furniture and everything that we owned on the street. Mm. And that's when I think my parents realized what would happen, what an eviction is. Um, and then, um, sort of bouncing house to house and getting food from food pantries. And I still today love the taste of Jeff's and uh, <laughs> cornbread and all these things. And a lot of that was built into what I was eating from a lot of those food, food boxes that we got. And uh, I face a lot of discrimination, you know, um, from the neighborhood, but then from police officers, uh, being in, in ugly cars. Eventually when I finally got a car, it was, they didn't have any door handles and, and crazy <laughs> things like that. And of course I was getting pulled over by the cops all over the place and had a lot of really intense interactions uh, in the city that brought me face to face with what the, 
sort of what it meant to not have that much, but what it meant to be different and what it meant to uh, sort of be profiled by the police. And I remember going to college and um, I went to, for business. So uh, I was in business school for a few years and uh, my mom um, at that point had, uh, at the age of 50, had four strokes, four blood oh, wow. clots all at once. And uh, she went to the hospital and uh, was sent off to hospice care where she was going to, basically we were told she was going to pass away. And I remember sitting there in accounting class and, and some of my other business classes and just everything, you know, started to look so weird and foreign and so meaningless. And I, I decided right there that, that this life wasn't going to be one that would fulfill me. It didn't mean, it didn't mean anything. And that the tradition that my mom actually lived in as a nurse and then uh, worked at a battered women's shelter. And all of my life, actually, uh, growing up, she also housed different aunties, people who uh, she met from the mosque uh, that we went to every uh, every Sunday, every Friday and Sunday. And she would uh, bring some of those women home who were homeless or had dealing with a divorce or were battered, and they stayed in our house. And as she was on her deathbed, uh, I'm proud to say that she, I'm really happy to say that she recovered. But while that was happening, um, I had to switch my life in, in in that sort of inspiration to do something that meant something. And I decided what better force for good could there be than to be an educator and to be a teacher. And um, I, I had this sense that, you know, I was going to be a teacher like the kind that I had never really had myself, which is someone who was cool, was young, understood <laughs> what it was like to be in the streets in Chicago, understood what it was like to deal with challenges, uh, understood how to connect to people, and I was going to be that teacher. And I was going to jump into that classroom, and I was going to inspire them by connecting hip-hop to poetry by and Shakespeare by uh, connecting commercials to arguments and just making everything super cool and, and just driving those college dreams. And um, my first job was at Harper High School in the south side of Chicago in West Englewood. It's a now notorious school um, because This American Life did a two-part series on that school in the last year I was teaching and called it the most dangerous school in America because 29 people had been shot and eight were killed um, in that school building. On in that one, one year, year, right? Those kids. Yeah, yeah. in one year. And, and the population was... 700. And that doesn't even account for all the, the students whose family members were affected, um, who were in dealing with so many other challenges that come when you're uh, dealing with poverty and violence and segregation at that scale. And um, I remember realizing that the poverty that I thought I understood or knew or experienced myself, you know, was not the same. It wasn't the same. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't what I had thought was going on, and that the solution was simply a really inspiring educator. I started to spend so much time listening to hundreds and hundreds of students, talking to them about their stories, about their lives, talking to families, to security guards, and it quickly became clear that, like, one that almost one of the biggest factors there was that a lot of the students I was teaching and many young people had so few experiences uh, outside of those communities and, uh, or even 
really positive experiences in their own communities. Um, and they, they had so few access to different models of success and uh, different ways of achieving uh, a different kind of lifestyle, one that they would be really proud of or happy of, and understanding the action steps that you got to take day in and day out in your class and in your schoolwork to, and in your community to achieve the ends that you want. And that lack of sort of understanding that A, action plus B, uh, you know, studying and mindsets equals C, outcomes, um, and then what are and widening the definition of what outcomes of success would be. There's so many pathways to achieve it, uh, and many of them could fit your passion, but you wouldn't know any of that unless you had different experiences. So you said it wasn't the same as your experience. Why? You know, your family struggled with poverty. You were in neighborhoods of Chicago that were underserved compared to some other places. Yep. Um, was mm-hmm. it simply family role models and mosque role models and, and, and the people who came in and out of your life? You know, there, there was, there was uh, several factors that I think play, come into play. One, um, yes, that we were immigrants. And that meant that... Um, when we weren't, we were in certain communities that yes, were suffering um, from lower outcomes and different challenges than um, than some of the best communities in Chicago right now. But uh, in their outcomes, but um, at the same time, it wasn't also dealing with massive amounts of violence and other challenges occurring at the same place, food deserts and other things like that. And those, some of those situations are concentrated in a lot of the South and West side communities. Um, and, uh, and so that's where, uh, that's one factor. The second factor is yes, the fact that I was, uh, I came from an immigrant family. We had a direct connection to uh, our history, a, a lot of these parts of our life, um, our family expectations, and also the most important thing is we haven't been systematically and historically, um, uh, um, we haven't been uh, systematically and historically uh, suffering from racism and all these injustices and uh, you know, slavery. Um, and that is a major aspect that, that you're going to start seeing in the communities that many of the South and West side neighborhoods, it doesn't have to do with um, necessarily like parents and, and the lack of uh, connection to their history. It has a lot to do with, but it was done on purpose. It was designed by redlining. It was designed by histor- histor- historical racism. It was, it's a byproduct of many of the policies that our city has had our country has had, and as a result has shaped the exact economics that we have today in many of those neighborhoods. And that segregation, I mean, you can look this all up on, you can just Google uh, metropolitan planning, segregation, Chicago, Google segregation, Chicago, you'll pull a history of all of how this all happened and, uh, and what the factors were at play. And they all had a lot to do with policies and real estate uh, one of the redlining policies is a really important factor, which is the fact that many communities, you basically take a red line pen and draw them around African-American communities, and those are the communities that were incapable of receiving loans or dollars, or they were receiving those dollars at insanely high interest rates so that no equity could be uh, had 
by the communities themselves in their own property. And that mm. has so much to play into what's happening today and why this, why that poverty is so different. It is uh, historically and racially uh, engineered to be unjust. Right, right. I mean, at its core, poverty and crime are usually economic problems that stem then from the actions and decisions of people who are facing life or death, right? Or providing for yeah. families. Um, one of the interesting things I've heard you talk about is what you thought when you got to Harper, you, you mentioned what kind of teacher you were going to be, the cool teacher, and you were going to, you know, spend a couple of years on the front lines of the, of these tough places, learn the most and get the most information, be able to go bigger with it. But even you mm-hmm. were surprised when you got there by some of the specifics. And we talk about these a lot when we're doing our Embark stuff out in, in trying to explain to people the goals of what we do. Um, kids who had never seen Lake Michigan and they live two miles yeah. away, right? Which yeah. makes people who are regular travelers or just regularly move about the city shocked to hear that kids who couldn't identify a strawberry that you brought into class because there's no grocery yeah. stores where they live. They just go grab a bag of chips to eat for breakfast and, you know, um, and then I think one of the most powerful is this idea of what these kids have to leave at home or even on the way to school before they get in that classroom. And how if you don't understand that and you think that yeah. they don't care or or they're frustrating um, and you don't know that, you know, some of them are going through serious, you know, deaths in the family, violence around them, that it's it's difficult just to get to and from school. If you don't walk the right street and the right path, you're on somebody else's yeah, trauma. turf. Um, so. How quickly did you have to learn that you were not just a teacher of education materials, but of sort of life and therapy and all of that? Yeah, that was well put. I mean, I had an idea that I was going to do all of those things as I went in, but I thought about it more from like a coach standpoint, like a, like, you know, you read a, you read a bunch of self-help books and you're like, all you need is uh, to a lot of belief and a lot of like right. understanding positive that mental attitude. Of. You just need <laughs> yeah. a positive mental attitude. You just need to understand what your goal is. You need to set it up. You need to be disciplined. Envision the race before you run it. Exactly. How's it going to go? <laughs> exactly. Totally. Uh, all you got to do is what the Bulls did to win the game. Like you just <laughs> practice shooting baskets while you never leave your chair. So I approached it a lot with that, with a different idea that I, that, what it was was a matter of just sort of understanding, you know, that we were at war against poverty and history and histories of racism. And that in many, in many ways, I, I felt like if we could just wake our troops up who are our young kids and our young folk to that war and then plan out a sort of action plan that we could start winning. Um, but you're right. You start, you, I quickly came to realize that there was so much else going on. I'll give you an example. I was teaching a class and I was trying to teach some uh, Macbeth. And, and in order to do Macbeth, we were just talking about what is morality or like right or wrong and how to, and, and, the, and the gray lines between all of that. And I remember talking to students about going to a, gro- imagine you go to a grocery store and you're, uh, you're there with your mom and she's, She's got her younger, your younger sister in her arms and she's pushing her shopping cart and she picks up a couple of these grapes, doesn't buy any, but she starts eating some of the grapes as she's pushing the cart and shopping. 
And I said, is that right? Is that wrong? Would you do that in front of your, your daughter if you were a mom? And let's have a debate about that sort of thing. I remember the entire conversation got derailed when my students wanted to know what kind of grocery stores I was talking about. What do I mean piles of fruit, pushing a cart? What do you mean eating grapes? Mm. And that's when I realized that many of the students that I was standing in front of, I am trying to get them to understand some concept. I'm using some pathway, but the language and the pathway that I was using did not understand the context in which they were living, their experiences. And that was just one failure in communication. But I was able to step back and go like, whoa, this is what we've been doing with education the entire time. We're sitting here saying, you need to know this, this, and this, and this, this, and this way. And if you can't get it, then that's on you. Mm. But the truth is, it's actually on us. We need to, we need to have our classrooms flow and go like, the people that are sitting in front of me are this, 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 and this type. They think about these things. They care about this. They understand this. They live in these situations. Their minds are about that. Let me take the concepts and the ideas that we want our young people to learn and bring it to them in a way that they can really see the value and the context of it in the, in the wider world and why they would want to understand that. And, yeah. and that, that is like a big failing of education, which is why we sit here focusing on math, reading, you know, test scores on ACT and SATs, and yet we don't realize that most fundamentally we are trying to light a fire within our young people to want to learn, to want to find interest, to be like hungry for learning, and that requires opening the world up into a wide array of experiences that build that. But you know, I, I want this other story really quick as I say that. But the minute I realized that my students hadn't been to the kind of grocery stores that I I understood or knew uh, knew about was it was the year that the new Lincoln Park Whole Foods just opened up, the really big one. And I yeah. decided I was going to I said I wanted to move there. The first time I went, I was like, <laughs> I want to live here. There's a there's a wine bar. There's like a it's like bigger than like a, any mansion you've ever been to. It's like the most beautiful store ever. I mean, we take it for granted now, but then when that when that opened up, it was like, whoa, how is this possible? <laughs> and I thought to myself, I want to bring my uh, students here so they can see food from, from all over the world, fruit from all over the world. They can see all the jobs that are there, all the different roles that people play, and um, you know, all all the all the kind of things and the cultures that come from food and come from uh, drinks and and all of that together. And I had planned this whole experience, and I remember there was one of my students, Malik, who uh, was refusing to go. And when I pressed him, finally, I cornered him in the library, and I said, listen, you, why aren't you going? You know, you're a linebacker of the football team. I know you love to eat, so there must be a reason. <laughs> um, and he, uh, he kind of looked at me and he's like, fine. Listen, Mr. Khan, I'm not going over there so they can laugh at me. Mm. I'm not going over there so I can make a fool of myself. You know we don't belong over there, and I'm just not going. Mm. And I remember that really struck me. That was one of my first lessons there as I, as I was starting to understand the scenario and the situation and why it was the way it was and why our students see things in certain ways and how, how, I, could, how I could show them different things in, in, in a different way. I remember I stepped back and I thought to myself, this is, again, the boundaries that divide us and that segregate us 
in many instances, they are, there's history, there's racism, but also there's massive divides inside. There are, play, there are fences that we build. And until we're able to cross those internally, we're never going to be able to do it in the, in the physical world. Yeah. Well, and to believe that there are spaces that you're not allowed in or you don't belong in is an entirely a, a result of your upbringing, right? Because yeah. so, so many of us have never really felt like that. We might be a little nervous or unsure, but we'll travel all the way across the world and show up and speak English right to people's faces who are like, what? You're, why are you just yeah. yelling in English in my face? Like, yeah. you're not even yeah, trying yeah, yeah. to speak the language of our country. Meanwhile, these people are two miles away from where they grew up, and that feels foreign because of the insular nature of their upbringing. And it's about safety on the one hand, but it's also like you're speaking to about not believing that you're invited to those spaces. You know, Chicago is one of the yeah. most segregated cities in the country. And if you don't know that there are people who have never had these experiences and gotten to, to be taken to different places, you wouldn't understand it. And as soon as you hear it, it clicks. Okay, I get it. If I had never done those things or seen those things, they would be scary or they would feel foreign, um, which yeah. brings me to why you decided that your services were not best used just as a teacher, but to found Embark and change the way that you approached like teaching and, and education and I want to I want to do it fairly quickly, but kind of explain the goal of Embark and then how it became something that's actually in classrooms that CPS schools now have created a, a class out of. Um, sir, right before I say that, uh, you know, one of the things that you just said resonates so much because we believe that somehow we have created this innocuous world in which every young person or anyone could simply just feel like they're welcome. They, everyone has an opportunity to success. Everyone has an opportunity to go anywhere. You can walk, you can get on the public transportation, you can be in the public spaces. We have, in our city, especially and in our country, we have this idea that that is the, the way the world is. Right. But in fact, that, that isn't. So much of what we see in the media, so much of uh, how different ethnicities are treated, so much of what is said in the rhetoric, so much of what we basically prove day in and day out with our schools, with our communities, with our segregation. Everything, in fact, tells our young people that you don't belong. Try and walk into a restaurant during lunch hour downtown with 20 students from south and west side. You're going to start getting looks my young people will start getting looks. And that right there tells you you don't belong. Try going into a store and have people not follow you around. Try walking mm-hmm. around downtown and people not clutching their purse if you're from a different ethnicity or if you look a certain way. Every single one of those signals tells people that you don't belong. And so it's of no surprise uh, but once it's like you don't really get it until you see it and you experience it, which is at the core of what we do. But um, that's no surprise why our young people feel like there's places where they belong, places where they don't belong, places where people will point at them, places where they won't. And it is on us to make sure that those city that we live in and the world we live in tells our young people yes at every possible corner in every possible way. Right. And that brings me a lot to that to what Embark was and how, and how it was designed. And as I was teaching, I started with the Whole Foods and with a couple of other experiences to, to a restaurant. 
And I started to one immediately. I remember we walked into a restaurant. I was with five boys uh, from school, five, five young guys. And we sat down for burgers at, at Michael Jordan's first restaurant, 160 Blue. Um, and we sat down and the manager came. I called her. She welcomed us. She gave us a tour. And one of the young guys, he had God's son tattooed across his throat. He leaned forward at me and he said, Mr. Khan, I feel like a millionaire. I can't believe they're treating us like this. And mm. I can't believe you can afford to eat here. You're just a teacher. How, how are you paying for this? I didn't tell the guy that it was $4 burger night. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I did, I did tell him. Uh, but what, what that ex- one of the things that comes out of that, too, is that in many instances, so we have kids going to school for 18 years of their life. And many of them don't realize that even with a teacher's salary, you go out three times a week, $45,000 a year, and that there are so many different paths to success and what that life can afford. Because in many instances, our TV is giving, TV and social media is giving our young people the idea that only if you achieve this crazy level of success could you eat at a restaurant like this or hang out with your friends like this, or enjoy a life like this. And that is where there's a major disconnect that, that we need to be closing as a society in our schools, showing our young folks these, kind of, these places and these pathways that you take could, could get you this kind of life. Yeah. So you and January Jones, who are, um, sorry, January yeah. Miller. January Jones, that would be cool, too, because she would be <laughs> a, a great spokesperson for Embark. Big, big reach. Uh, you and January Miller are teaching together at Harper. And, I mean, how do you take the leap to create an entire thing and, and leave the safety of being a part of, like, you know, a specific school? So, so there was never any intention to do that. And, in fact, what we started to do was, take our students on all these field experiences. So uh, we would take them to these locations. We spent a lot of time prepping them on what's about to happen. Then we go on these experiences, these points of reflection, and then we come back and we reflect on those experiences. And we always wrote thank you notes. And, uh, and uh, we would share feedback that we got from locations with our students. And almost immediately, we started to see skyrocketing changes in behavioral infractions. They started to dip down, grades, attendance started to skyrocket. And a lot of the folks in the school, the leadership of the school and the leadership in the network in CPS were like, oh my God, what is happening here? We were tracking data every week and putting it up on the wall and the entire school was looking at it. And those students who were getting experiences of spending the least amount of time in school were doing the best because they were going on all of these experiences. Um, And that's when we were like, wait, there's something going on here. And it's showing in the data super fast. And then other teachers started to send us their students. And then more teachers wanted to get involved. At one point, we had 160 students who had to meet in the auditorium to go on an experience. And we were like, wow, this is getting really expensive to pay for out of your pocket. Mm-hmm. So we had a put. It was like, okay, let's start a nonprofit just so that we can raise enough money that we can fund these experiences for for the young folks that we that we have. And the first event was at Quencher's Saloon here in Chicago. We raised two thousand dollars, and we thought we had made it. <laughs> it was gonna it was gonna pay for so many of those experiences. But then we started to get calls from other teachers at other schools who had heard about what we were doing, 
and they were calling us on the phone and they were begging us to pro- to provide them some of the same experiences that we already went on to them. And then we had principals calling us and then those principals would get on a phone with six other principals and tell them that this is probably the best program that we've had at our school um, since I've been principal. And then other principals started to ask for the program. And at that point, it had been, you know, three years of working full-time at a really tough school while launching a nonprofit, raising money, and helping other teachers do the same thing. And at that point, when six other schools had asked to have Embark, Jay and I had to uh, make the decision to leave work without, I mean, we had raised $150,000 at, at that point. So we had we'd left work knowing that we may not be able to pay ourselves, and we, had, we didn't know where the money was coming from, but um, we took a leap of faith because we knew so many young folks and so many teachers and, and principals were asking for this work as one of the most important things uh, that they could do for their young people. So what are the numbers on Embark now? Yeah, we're at 20 schools. We serve yeah. 2,000 people. And the latest is it, it, it was originally and is a class from 10th to 12th grade. So students go to a class in their school in which they have access to eight to 10 field experiences um, and a curriculum that's all based on social, emotional learning, like uh, financial literacy and uh, identity work and a lot of uh, and um, service learning projects that they're designing and uh, career trajectories and boards and dream scenarios that they're designing for themselves and all the skills that you need to learn as you start interacting with people across race and socioeconomic status are rehearsed and practiced in those classes in the curriculum. But today, um, we are proud that we've, we've launched two whole schools. So these are the first two public, Chicago public schools that have gone wall-to-wall experiential, which mm. means that every single student and every single class and every single teacher is leaving the building eight times a year and having experiences across the city, in their community, outside of their community, and in their schools. And every teacher is being trained on how to leverage this new tool, like their pens and their markets or their whiteboards um, experiences, to transform how students learn. One of the biggest things we've been seeing coming out of this is that uh, 98% of our teachers strongly agree that Embark is dramatically improving their overall teaching practice. And they say it's doing it because of a couple of main things. One, it's changing how they understand or see their students and what they're capable of. Uh, it's building a lot of empathy and it's putting them in such a new context where their role is really to just facilitate as the students really take a lot of action. And it dramatically shifts how they see themselves in school and their role as a teacher which is a really important factor when you look at any factor that leads to how do you create whole, how do you tr- transform education? One of the main things that you see in research time and time again is that the te- being able to impact teacher practice and improve it to be more reflective, more empathetic, and more experimental will dramatically improve outcomes for young people and in, in any school. Yeah. And one of the things you've talked about, too, is the experience helping the city of Chicago, the people who are on the other end of those journeys who are meeting all these yeah. students and the way that it yeah. creates economic change in the city by sending all of these students that previously felt like their only option was NBA player, rapper, 
or gang member, right, or drug dealer, um, into jobs and into the marketplace in spaces that they previously felt like they weren't welcome in? Um, so it's well documented um, that there's a massive cost of segregation and the distances between race and socioeconomic status. And uh, some of the research at the Metropolitan Planning uh, document that is called the cost of segregation puts the cost of $4.4 billion. And that's the cost uh, of segregation to our society. And I, that doesn't even include all the violence and all the other issues that start happening and all of its sort of emotional impact. So when we think about what is the role of experiential learning or exposure and experience-based learning, it actually plays multiple, multiple pieces. So we think about it as a fundamental root cause problem. So there's a fundamental root cause problem is that the distances between people, the lack of equity in who has access to good schools, who has access to good jobs, who has access to uh, to opportunity, who has access to models of success, all of that is a root issue that's fundamental to uh, basically creating a city of inequity. And so if you're able to turn our schools where there's nearly 400,000 uh, students, um, 90% of which are POC, if you have 400,000 students who now are learning through experiences beyond the classroom in and outside of their community, you are now creating nearly 100 million impressions and interactions across race and socioeconomic status across an entire city. There's 3 million people in this city. If you were able to accomplish a school system that leveraged experiences to dramatically change outcomes for young folks and, and their ideas of what's possible and where they belong, you will in turn also create a massive footprint of creating human-to-human -human direct interactions across race, across socioeconomic status, but also among like people in communities. It would basically spark a massive, a massive uh, um, sort of movement that then starts to dissolve the footing that racism and bias and hate sort of stand on. It's proven that the reason people hold biases and the reason people hold racism is because uh, it's something that's been entrenched in how they see the world. And the only way research is seen to counteract that is to repeated, direct, human, uh, mm -hmm. firsthand experience, human-to-human -human interaction that's counter to their original belief. Mm -hmm. Now, if you can imagine a city that creates, that focuses our school to turn into this engine to create human-to-human -human connection, we would have a massively transformed social fabric very, very quickly. So that's a lot of the vision that Embark is working on to say, can we turn our schools into this lever to transform our society? Well, I'll tell you from being on the board and from my interactions on the journeys and working to try to spread the word, um, how much I've learned and how much I better understand all of these issues, issues that I always wanted to be on the quote unquote right side of, and I just wanted to help with, but 
being deeply immersed in and really understanding it allows you to be so much more of a tool toward toward changing things. And so much of the problem in Chicago particularly, but this is uh, applicable to so many other places, is just what you speak to, which is if you just isolate yourself, um, you're able to continue using confirmation bias to reaffirm what you've yeah. always thought about other people and other things. Yeah. Um, and so it needs to be forced on some people. So I, I wonder what you would say to someone who, say, uh, blames the kids that are getting in trouble, that are that are going to jail in Chicago, that are causing crimes. Um, not that they don't have the free will to decide not to do things, but to someone who would say, well, there's people that come come out of the, the, the less wealthy neighborhoods of Chicago and they do just fine. So it's a personal choice. What would you say to them about how to just view differently um, our approach to those neighborhoods and the people coming out of them? Well, one, I think um, we, as a society, have to recognize that historically we have isolated and segregated a large number of our population and debilitated their ability to economically succeed and to build businesses and to build uh, economic engines so that more and more populations can have access to jobs, opportunities to complete uh, to two parent households, to you know all this kind of all the kind of stuff that many of our um, well-meaning liberal friends uh, believe are the drivers for uh, success. And we so we tokenize this idea that a single you know hey I know I know some folks who came from the same place and they did really well, but yet when you look at a system. And you want to say to yourself, what is the impact of that system? You know, I would say, I would say to a lot of people is like, yes, we do have a lot of successes. And there are amazing folks coming out of our South and West side communities. There are amazing things happening in the South and West side communities, but yet we've set up a system that means that you have to be in the top, top, top one percentile to even succeed and uh, to even succeed and, and be that, tokenized person that you're referring to. Right. But the system has basically created a way that it ensures that almost 90% are going to face such intense hardships. And that just isn't good. It's not, it's not good for business. It's not good for people. It's not good for lives. It's not good for our economic growth. And no solution, I think many of the times I also sit with well-meaning liberal friends who, you know, want to be on the right side. And They'll get stuck on certain ideas where they'll say things like, you know, if only we raise the minimum wage from eight twenty five to twelve dollars, you know, that's what I'm standing behind. It'll save the world. And that is a cop out because that's not true. Try try raising a family on twelve dollars, mm-hmm. um, and also try try asking yourself why is the entire system functioning this way? And you have to start you have to start looking in the mirror, asking yourself what biases do you hold. And what biases do you have on others? And how might you go about your path to learning, uh, to challenging yourself and to learning from others? Yeah, it it is remarkable how many things, uh, even that feel helpful and useful, can sometimes be counterproductive, which is why understanding solutions that work and then making them scalable to other places uh, is a big yeah. key versus just let me donate money or let me do this. Um, and And I think... It's clear that Embark has done that at the local level. Um, we're kind of running out of time, but I'm curious how, what's standing in your way and what do you need to make it even bigger mm. and better? 
other than obviously money, because that's a big help with anything that's yeah. you know a nonprofit and working in the nonprofit world. Um, so, Sarah, for the last basically eight months, I have been working with leaders of philanthropy and uh, Field Foundation, Angelique Powers, and Beth Swanson, who was a former head of education um, and was the vice president of the Joyce Foundation, now is at a better Chicago and the mayor of Chicago, and the, and the leaders of Chicago Public Schools from the Equity Office, Maurice Sweeney. And we've been convening hundreds of folks and uh, also more than 160 students and teachers and adults and parents and community leaders together. And we brought them together with the idea of saying, let's make Chicago the most innovative and experience-based education system in the world by 2025. And together, let's design how we get there what the challenges might be and what the roadblocks might be, and then how do we design it into the school system so that we are able to achieve that type of change and we're able to start getting on a path to create a much stronger collective social fabric. So we've been doing a lot of work around that so that we can say, okay, Embark has got its model. It's built out the tools for an entire school to start leveraging experiences for teachers, um, but now we've got to be able to get it to into their hands and we got to understand that there's a whole there's a whole uh, ecosystem of issues so one of the major things that I think um, as we think about what role people can play is how can you open doors for our young folks can you do you have access to businesses do you have access to places do you have things that you can show really if we open doors we will start meeting the demand by our teachers and our community for those experiences uh, and being able to start each individually closing the distances and the gaps between us. Yeah. Yeah. And that's people from every walk of life saying, I would love to host your students at this thing that I work for, or to show them these jobs that they don't know exist or to welcome them to a a concert or a sporting event that they haven't experienced all that stuff. Exactly. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And And they can, they just get on our website at uh, www.embarkchicago.org and click on the partner link and send us a note and um, my team and the team will follow up with them about uh, creating those experiences. And it's fun. We've made some, uh, we've made some very interesting radio shows at ESPN with those (laughs) classes of students coming in. None of them are about sports. We're just totally fine. But, uh, but yeah, it's been good. Well, Sarah, Uh, I also want to thank you for, for um, doing multiple dinners at your home where you bring different folks together, host our alumni, host other members and, all come and have like a, a really beautiful dinners where you learn from each other. Thank you yeah, for doing I mean, that. That's a great suggestion too for people in their own neighborhoods is to look up Jeffersonian dinner, figure out what it is, and then invite a diverse group of people that you've always maybe found a little interesting, but you don't really know. Not your good friends, people that are just uh, from all sorts yeah. of different backgrounds and industries and come together and have uh, conversations that really open up your minds about other people. And uh, it's, it's massively life-changing. It really is. Um, well, I know you're super busy, so I so appreciate you taking the time to chat. I think I, and I hope that this conversation with, with you and with Jamal, uh, and, and that can be taken for Chicago's, but you know, nationally for, for people who are trying to work on some of these issues. So I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much, sir. That's what she said. I'm so inspired by that dude. I, I'm really hoping and I, I hope to see the Embark model spread to other cities and other states. Um, but I had an equally fascinating conversation with Jamal Cole, who approaches his neighborhood work from a slightly different place and perspective, but with really similar goals. Here's my conversation with Jamal. 
That's what she said. Super excited to talk to Jamal Cole. I was at a Chicago Ideas conversation that he just did about a month or so ago, and I work in some similar spaces in Chicago. Um, but I, I want to dive deeper into my block, my hood, my city, how it came about, and what he's trying to do to change the way we uh, educate and raise youth in Chicago. So let's start with who you are. Like, where did you grow up, and and, and how did you kind of uh, how did you kind of see the problems in Chicago from the inside out? Yeah, so, um, you know, we, the class of 1988, are determined to be our best at whatever we say or do. We'll share a smile and lend a hand to our neighbor, because no matter what, we'll be the best in a lifetime. Um, those 50 words were the entirety of my preschool graduation speech. Um, you know, <laughs> my mom taught me how to use hand gestures. My dad made me memorize the speech. Um, I still don't use notes when I'm speaking now, because my parents taught me the fundamentals of, uh, of being an activist. My dad loved Stokely Carmichael, Malcolm X. Robert Kennedy, uh, these are my heroes growing up. Um, I grew up, you know, in, in poverty. Um, I didn't know a food stamp wasn't real money until I put one in a pot machine and it broke. And my teachers laughed at me. Um, I remember that making me want to steal. Wow. You thought um, it was currency, like American I did. currency. Wow. Okay. I did. I did, you know. Um, and I did, my teachers had to explain to me we were on welfare. Um, some of my earliest memories were riding a bus with my dad in Fort Worth, Texas, and, you know, a white bus driver looking down on me and saying, that's a nice young boy you got there. If I was any younger, I'd kill him. You know, that was like one of my earliest memories at seven. Um, I remember turning, I remember being homeless at 11, and we lived in the back of a U-Haul truck. You know, we were homeless so long, U-Haul came and took the truck back. That's how, that's how long we lived in the back of that truck. Um, we used to open up a gate at night for, for air. Um, but so when I came up, it was just very, very, um, just very, more so than a poverty of finance, we had like a, a deficit of hope, I would say, or a poverty of imagination. And that's kind of how I remember um, um, my upbringing. Yeah. I, I remember you talking at a Chicago Ideas Week uh, conference panel um, about the first time you had lasagna, right? Of course. I'll never forget that date. Um, the first time I ever had lasagna was when I broke into a house with my brother. And um, we went in through the window and there was a, um, a glass plate of lasagna. And we used to break into homes for food, for like a, for, for like what we thought was exotic food, like pineapples or cherries or, or blackberries. But in this particular instance, um, they had a, a plate of lasagna in the, in the kitchen, in the, in, the, in the refrigerator. And, um, you know, I, I took the plate out, um, removed the plastic, and I cut a square out. And when I tasted it, I was like, hmm, this is what it tastes like to be rich. <laughs> and so I don't know why I still feel Lasagna with people being rich, but that was um that was my uh, that was the first time I ever broke into a home uh, was um, was eating lasagna. So one of the things you talked about when you were describing that moment is this idea that crime becomes very different to the person committing it based on the context in which they're committing it, right? So if you're doing that because you just need to survive and eat, it doesn't so much feel the same as someone who commits a crime for for greed or um uh you know, out of boredom or something, right? So as you grew up, you sort of were able to, in your head, explain to yourself and your family why going outside the law was necessary and maybe not as bad as, as others might think in, in different areas. Yeah, I mean, you know, when your dad steals food for dinner for the family and you, uh, he goes into jewels and steals you, you know, little Debbie snacks and some a canned food of soup, and you say, man, Dad, you know, um, you just win jewels and stole our dinner tonight. And then my dad looks down at me and says, I've never stole nothing a day in my life. You see what I'm saying? So I didn't grow up around people that admitted to stealing. It was 
what was necessary. You know what I mean? It was a, um, you know, it, it was a way of life. And um, I wasn't the only person that felt that way. Right. So your parents broke up and got back together a lot. And you mentioned being in Texas with your dad. Um, I, I, I heard you on a podcast talking about what separated you from the other kids in your neighborhood was that you traveled outside of Chicago because you would take these long bus trips to see your dad in the times when your parents were broken up. And even the things that you saw just riding a Greyhound cross country and being in Texas and back changed your perspective on where you wanted to go and what you wanted to do with your life. Right. Yeah. That Greyhound bus, you know, that was my, uh, that was my Disneyland. When my parents used to break up, I used to take the Greyhound bus from Chicago to Fort Worth, Texas, where my dad lived. And I would look out the window and see the um, the concrete in Chicago change to cornfields in Missouri and um, greater Illinois. Um, I would see the things change in Memphis and Arkansas, the accents, the scenery, the food. That was my vacation. That was, that was the only time I ever traveled. But, um, you know, when it came time to go to college, I realized that nobody in my block in my neighborhood had ever left the city. Their whole worldview was shaped by you know, the infrastructure of our neighborhood. And that was tragic because nobody wanted to leave. But because I had left um, um, indirectly, this, this trauma had given me a, a vacation. And I knew that I could like, wake up in a different city and be okay. And that was the one thing that I felt like I had over my friends. I said, I ain't never going out of Chicago. You know, you leave in Chicago, you, I ain't going nowhere. You know what I mean? So I, I felt like that was one of the things I had. So you decided that you wanted to go to college and what was the reaction from family and friends and people at school when you said that that was a goal of yours? Um, what you trying to be white? Huh. That was the reaction. Oh, you trying to go to college? Don't you, don't you think you're better than us? Oh, you trying to be white. Oh, you, um, oh, man, you doing too much. Oh man, I don't know. You know, you, you reaching, you know what I mean? Um, you, 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 I ain't going nowhere. You know, that was the response. I mean, like, even the people that loved me said that because they were scared of me going. I mean, could you imagine coming from the city and going to college in rural Nebraska? People are scared. And the way they articulate that frustration is not always going to be, let's sit down and let's talk. You know, it's like, yo, would you be tripping? Yeah. So you went to Wayne State in Nebraska to play basketball. Um, when you got to college, was the experience what you imagined it would be? Um, no, it was a fish out of water experience. Um, I didn't know what to imagine because I the only I didn't know the difference between Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three. You know, I, when I saw the the pamphlet that had lights and computers, I thought it was Notre Dame. I saw manicured <laughs> lawns. I didn't know what to expect. Um, all I thought I was I was I thought I was going to go to the league. You know, I was I, I want to go to the NBA, and that was my um, that was my goal. So um, I had no um, frame of reference. I didn't know anybody that had been to college. You've know, you got to understand, I went to an alternative high school. I never had teachers. I had modules. You know what I mean? So, um, What does that mean for people who don't know? What does it mean to say I went to an alternative high school? Uh, alternative schools are schools that you go to when you are kicked out of traditional public school or you're not going to graduate from a traditional public school or you're coming out of Cook County Juvenile Detention Facility, essentially a juvenile jail, and they put you in these alternative schools. There's an accelerated program for you to graduate and get your high school diploma. So that's the school that, I, you know, that they think people are misfits that go to schools like this. So that's the school that I went to. So I wasn't used to having homework. I wasn't used to having teachers, let alone professors in college. Um, I wasn't, I had never read a book before, right? I knew every rap album in the world by heart, but I didn't, I never read a book. So, you know, um, that was my um, frame of reference. And so going to college where you have, um, you, can, uh, you can understand that I had a lot of excuses. 
you know, uh, people were racist in Nebraska. I'm not used to having teachers. I never read a book. It's cold out here. I don't got no money. I hate the food. It smells like manure. I mean, I had, I had all these excuses, and that's um, that's how I started college. So you come in with all these excuses, some of which are really valid, though. And, and the idea of always trying to force the college model on people sometimes runs up against a wall when whatever resources that they had to help get them there aren't there in college and they don't can't afford the books or they haven't been taught the proper, you know, best practices for studying or they don't have a computer or the right you know technology at home to do the work. Um, so how did you sort of figure out? for yourself, which of these excuses are things that are actually holding me back and which ones am I putting in front of myself because it's it's scary to realize that I need to work harder or change myself to succeed here? It was uh, my college basketball coach, Rico Burkett. After my first semester, I went to his office and he said, Jamal, you got a great smile, great attitude. Why do you have a 1.7 GPA? You have a 1.7. <laughs> that was one. I told him, I said, Rico, well, since you let me walk onto the basketball team and I'm grateful, I'm going to tell you the truth. So I told him I don't have any books. I said, I can't afford a book. I've never read a book. I went to an alternative high school, man. I don't. I never had a professor, let alone a teacher. You know what I mean? I, um, people in Nebraska are treating me racist, bro. Somebody on my own team called me colored the other day. Right? Mm. I told him, man, it's cold. I don't got no money. I hate the food. It smells bad. I'm having a hard. I'm, I'm having a hard time adjusting, man. Do you understand me? And he was like, he was really patient with me, and he let me go through my list, my long list. And I told him, man, you know, after your long practices, I don't got time to be studying. I got to get back to my dorm room and watch some ESPN. You know, I got to roll some <laughs> dice with my friends. And, um, and he told me, he, um, he said, Jamal, you know what's missing from your list? I was like, no, what? He says, your name is not on it. No excuses. The highest level of maturity is taking full responsibility for your actions. And I said, are you crazy, bro? I just told you that I don't have no money. I just told you that I, I said that, bro, like I am – it's cold. People in the, somebody on my first day on campus said, can you talk to my little brother on the phone? He's never talked to a black basketball player before. He watches oh, wow. the NBA all the time. Will you talk? Yeah. Like, this is what I'm dealing with. I don't have any money. I've never had a teacher. I've never read a book. And he said, Jamal, no excuses. The highest level of maturity is taking full responsibility for your actions. And so, you know, um, he called me back into the office two days later. I thought he was going to kick me off the team, but he gave me a $500 book scholarship. And wow. you know, I was able to buy four, four of the five books that I needed. And in one semester, I went from a, a one a seven GPA to a three five. Um, you know, I had four A's and one C, and I was so ecstatic that I went back to his office. And I said, "Man, you got to play me now. You know, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm going to the NBA. You got to play me. I got four A's and a C. What are you going to say to me?" And he was like, he, he looked in. You know, I, I slammed my report card down on his desk. I was like, "What? That's a three five. Four A's and a C. So, what are you going to say?" So he looked at me. He looked at my report card. He looked at me. He looked at my report card. He looked at me. He said, "Jamal, why the hell did you get a C?" <laughs> what? Why what a hard ass. I just told you, it's cold out here. I've got no money. I hate the food. It smells like manure. I'm having a hard time. I went through this long list, and I hated this guy. Listen, I thought I was going to go to the NBA. I hated him. I played five minutes of basketball four years. I never played. I hated him to a pass. Listen, he was the worst person I ever met in my life, and I hated him. And he was my basketball coach. And I hated him so much that I wrote a book about how much I disliked him for taking my dream away from me of being a basketball mm. player. And after I wrote that book when I was 22, some, I was standing downtown in front of Foot Locker selling them, and somebody from the Cook County Jail read my book and said, hey, will you come to the jail and talk to the kids here? And then when I got to the jail to speak to the kids about this motivational story of going from an alternative high school and graduating college in three years, the people at the jail wouldn't listen to me. So I just asked the guys at the jail, I said, hey, Mark Quill, I said, why do you think you're in jail right now? Why hasn't your life worked out up until right now? You guys know what Mark Quill says? He said, it's cold out here. I don't got no money. I hate the food. It smells like a And that's what it dawned on me. 
That's what it dawned to me that my coaching, my college coach Rico Burkett was not teaching me basketball. He wasn't teaching me how to change my jump shot. He was teaching me to change my philosophy. Like back in 2005, I blamed everybody else besides me for my problems. I had an excuse for everything. The city's messed up. So what? Everybody was messed up except me. And that's when and I, that's when it dawned on me that this dude had spent so much time, and I wasn't even grateful. So I called him and said, Coach, listen, I'm so sorry, man. Thank you for pouring into me. I had no frame of reference. And he just told me, Jamal, pay it forward. And that's what I do what I do today. I don't care if the students aren't grateful. I, don't, I know they don't know what they don't know. But it's up to me to pay it forward and invest into them. And so, yeah, that's, that's what it was. That's why I stopped making excuses because there's, there's an excuse for everything. You can say I'm a product of my environment. I'm a victim of my circumstances. My parents ain't got no degree. You know, the city's messed up. The schools is messed up. The cops is messed up. The gangs is messed up. This is Chicago. You can say the economy is messed up. Really, your philosophy is messed up. It's your philosophy because things are never going to change in Chicago. This summer is going to be just as bad as it was last. It's never going to change. The only way things change is when you change. That's it. Right. Like, things get better when you get better. And that's it. And so I don't care if I'm talking to high school students. I don't care if I'm talking to business owners. The only way it gets better for you is when you get better. And that's the mindset you have to have in Chicago because it's so dangerous. But if you don't set any goals for yourself, you're going to get you're going to become part of somebody else's goal. So you started out going to Cook County Jail in a suit, and then you realized that you yeah. weren't going to be able to be accessible to them until you became more like them. Yes. Well, I didn't become more. I just I didn't become more like them. It's just I had to like. Um, you got to swim, man, to connect with people. You got to be vulnerable, and that's so hard. Like vulnerability is the bridge. You know what I mean? Like you can't come in top down thinking you're about to teach somebody something. They need to. They need to see you as them. And you need to talk from a, a real lens. Like, hey, what separates me from you? Luck, probably. Because there's nobody, there's no great people in the world. We're all ordinary. We take on great challenges. We're all ordinary. But when you're wearing a suit and you come into the Cook County Jail, what it says to people that, um, that don't look people in the eye every day, it says that you think you're better than me. And so in order to connect, you just have to, like, meet them where they're at. So I just start wearing my Jordans and I start wearing my hoodie. And they connect it. And that's how kind of my block, my hood, my city started, that you would talk to the guys about where they were from and how they'd ended up in Cook County. And they would all, you know, say what their hood was instead of their city. And you realize that their connection was to the tiny neighborhood they were from, right, and not to Chicago itself, which speaks to the larger issue of Chicago sort of being in pockets for a lot of people where they don't access the stuff that makes it this, like, world-class city. Yeah, I mean um... – yeah, that, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. When I have to ask people where they're from, they say, my block is the 21st Street on the west side. And then another kid would say, my hood is the low end. Why do you guys say my block and my hood with such fervor? You know, it's like, you're so parochial. And they'd be like, what do you mean? I mean, like, you just say it like you own something. And you don't own anything. You know, why, why don't you say my city? And they said, man, ain't no black people in downtown Chicago. What are you talking about, man? Ain't no black people up north in Chicago. This is... You know, Chicago is, and they're right, Chicago is segregated, but that's not all, all the time true, right? I worked downtown at the time, so I, I'm black. So I was like, who told you that? And that's, when I started probing, I started realizing that none of these kids had ever been downtown, really. Not, not, they had never waved for a taxi before, right? They saw Lake Michigan, and they said, what ocean is that? Mm. Right? These kids had never been in an elevator. Their whole worldview was shaped by their block or their neighborhood. Like Jay-Z, he grew up in Marcy Projects. He said he never left Marcy Projects his whole life until his third grade teacher, Miss Loudon, took him to Midtown and he went to a, 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 a her, her condo. And inside her condo, she had an a ice dispensary machine. 
And he said once he saw the ice dispensary machine, he said, wow, when I, when I get older, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something real important. I'm going to buy my mom a, a condo with a, that's, that got an ice dispensary machine in it. You see what I'm saying? So that fish-out-of-water experience that Jay-Z had when he left Marcy Projects, that's exactly what I curate for teenagers in Chicago who've never left their neighborhood, right? Their whole worldview, what's possible, is shaped by a few blocks, and that's tragic. Yeah, so you were a Microsoft engineer at a trading firm, and you started out by taking guys who got out of Cook County that you had formed a relationship with or other guys to kind of learn and, and go to lunch and see downtown and see what it was like to go to a job. And eventually you decided to take that from let me stop spending my personal money trying to balance all this to creating this nonprofit What's the biggest jump for you from doing it on the side to trying to make your nonprofit your full-time job? Well, anybody that wants to start a nonprofit or a social impact organization, you need to have faith over everything because, you know, it, you have to, like, I don't believe in sustainability anymore. Like, you see, I'm, when you grow up, when you're living in the world, you always think about how can I be stable? How can I, like, um, make how can I how can I keep up with the Joneses? How can I uh, make sure my family I have a four hundred one k? How can I do you know? And, and and you can't really see past that. You can't see past a month in your, when you run in a social impact organization. You know what I mean? So is a flower sustainable? I don't know, but it's still beautiful, right? Like and, and when you're dealing with youth anyway, you can't. Um, how can I say? Programs are programs, but people touch people. You see what I'm saying? Like so, you can act like you have a you're a mentor. You can act like you have an after school program all you want. But consistency is key with these youth because they're so used to people coming in and out of their lives. They're not going to build a relationship with you if you keep on coming in and out of their lives. So um, that's hard because it's hard. You know, my home got foreclosed. Do you know how hard it is to, to, to go next door and have to use the neighborhood's hose for water? Do you know how hard it is to have your electricity cut off? Do you know how hard it is to sell books downtown in front of Foot Locker because you don't got no money? Do you know how hard it is to get corporations to be convinced to support your social impact? It's damn near impossible, right? And so that's the that's what I'm talking about. Like you have to you have to struggle, and the road is so narrow that you can't turn around. This ain't for everybody. This is not sustainable. This nobody listen. I exist because Chicago has forgotten about black and brown youth on the south and west sides. So think about that. What I'm saying with my black, my hood, my city is that there's a whole group of kids on the south and west side of the city that have never been downtown. Think about that. I'm talking about 14 to 18-year-olds that want to work for a marketing firm but have never been in an elevator. Right. That, right. That, that's tragic. And so that's why I existed because I identified a problem and I said, you know what? Instead of, like, pontificating, instead of coming up with all these graphs, instead of coming up with all these logic models, instead of trying to show data, I'm going to go into the school and just help. That's why I exist. So you work with a bunch of schools and you do experiential learning where you take kids to to different places to learn about what it is to work there or what it is to, you know, be cultured by visiting this museum or this place. And then you also do some really interesting neighborhood projects. And I first heard about you with your shoveling for seniors. It, it kind of went viral a little around Chicago. Um, so tell me why it's important to you to gather people together to shovel the block for seniors in, in those divested neighborhoods, why it was important to you this this year to have a couple different weekends spent lighting up MLK Junior Drive. Uh, um, you know, why are those yeah. things as meaningful to you as one to one peer kind of leadership with these students? 
because it's the same philosophy switch I'm trying to change in the city. You just ask anybody in Chicago, why does your neighborhood look like this? You know what they say? They say, oh, man, the city's messed up. The cops is messed up. The weather is messed up. They say the schools is messed up. The economy is messed up. Their philosophy is messed up. Right? The, the mayor doesn't demand that you get to know your neighbor. Right? But if you want your block to be better, you have to demand that of yourself. Right? The, the, the aldermen, the local politicians don't demand that you pick up the trash in your alley. But, you know, if you want there to be less rats born in your alley, you got to demand that of yourself. So I'm all about, instead of blaming things on big city government, what's something simple? Our whole philosophy is 15 words, and that's what's something simple that I can do that will make a positive impact on my block. What's something simple I can do that will have a positive impact on my block? And that's why you can't get any more simpler than shoveling snow for seniors. Listen, I live in Chatham. It's 70% of seniors that live in Chatham, right? And so I shovel for my block. And when I need help, I go right to Twitter or Facebook and say, help. And hundreds of people come out and help. And it's because it's, it's people are jaded. They they are, they they want to be involved and don't know how. And so when I, we do simple things, we like to on ramp. My block, my hood, my city is the on ramp to community engagement for corporations, millennials. They want to work for corporations that are civically engaged. We give them the opportunity at the block level. They love it. We need the help, and they appreciate it too. So when it comes to King Drive, hey man, kids on King Drive right now. I mean, King Drive all the over the world is divested, but in Chicago, the, all you see is helicopter lights and police car lights on King Drive. We want to see some holiday lights in Christmas time, right? So, or holiday season. So what we do is we, um, we hang holiday lights. It's very simple. We decorate 400 city poles from 35th Street to 115th Street. We put nine-foot garland, ribbon, and bows on all the poles. We decorated over 250 homes this year for free. We put, you know, wreaths on everybody's door, um, ornaments on their, you know, uh, on the gutters and the bushes and the trees. And um, and I see the lights and everything like that. It's a a simple idea, but it brought together people from all over Chicago. And they, um, we call it be a part of the light campaign. And again, um, you know, um, we're not trying to compete with, you know, downtown lights, nothing like that. We're just trying to do simple things to inspire hope. But really, it's, it's really not about the lights. It's actually about interrupting trauma on King Drive. Kids are traumatized that live there. They're traumatized, man. I'm telling you, when you, most kids, like 90% of the kids in my program know somebody that's been killed personally. But only like 10% of the kids in my program know somebody that's graduated from college. There's a lot of trauma on King Drive. Like, again, when you have to order your food on King Drive through bulletproof glass windows every day, right? That's traumatizing. When, when, when you have to, um, when there's helicopters flying over your house at night, shining down lights, that's traumatizing, right? When there's, when there's a, um, every billboard in the community says cheap divorce, or $6,000 tax advances, that's traumatizing, right? When you have to order Doritos through a bulletproof glass window, that's traumatizing. So I want to do something positive, something simple, right? Hang holiday lights on King Drive so kids can be, we can inspire hope, but also we can interrupt trauma. So you're talking a lot about some of the things that show up in your new book, It's Not Regular, which is videos and observations, or not videos, visuals, photos and observations about the things that, people get accustomed to in certain neighborhoods that are not regular, that are not normal, but become so regular um, for, in their lives that they don't understand, you know, what's what's so different about their way of life compared to maybe other people in different areas. What was the goal with this book? Why did you want to showcase this, the idea of, like, toilet paper that's, you know, that's tied to a, 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 a pole so that it can't be stolen or, you know, having to order yeah. everything through glass? Yeah, I mean, it's it, 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 it's really just pointing out, it's highlighting injustices and it's creating a conversation, right? We always talk about Chicago so segregated. Well, what does that mean? 
Like, you know what I mean? Like, what is that? So I just broke it down. Pictures, there's a lot of pictures in my book that are worth a thousand words. Let me tell you what that means. That means that it's not regular for kids to have to walk into high school and take their belt off and shoes off just to get into the school. You know, it's not regular for kids, for there to be no toilet paper or no paper towels in the bathroom or school, and kids are expected to learn in film, right? It's not regular for there to be 20 teachers in a school and 12 of them are substitute teachers. That's not regular, right? It's not regular for at the basketball game after school there to be no parents in the stands because the parents are working two, three jobs. That's not regular, right? It's not regular for German shepherds to sniff kids on the bus when they go to school in the morning, right? Mm. These kids are growing up thinking these things are regular. It's not regular. Something's wrong in Chicago. In some neighborhoods, the quality of life, the health and the safety is worse than in some third world countries, right? And so we got to start calling out these things. We got to start pointing them out because people are, they want us to stay asleep at the wheel. It's not regular for there to be all these currency exchanges and no banks in my community, right? It's not regular for there to be a holding cell in the basement of a funeral home. There's no healthy reason that there's a liquor store in every other corner. This isn't regular. But people grow up in Chicago thinking this is regular because they're, they're, they're desensitized to there being gunshots. You could be in the backyard of the cookout. Shots ring out. 50 shots ring out. Everybody gets quiet. A couple minutes later, we just go back to eating. Hmm. That's not regular, man. I, I, I talked to a kid. Um, these kids are in ninth grade, and they've been to 15 funerals. That's not regular, man. So I wrote a book about these things, and I pointed them out to kids with pictures to show them that, man, I talked to a kid. He said he doesn't keep a lock on his iPhone. I said, well, why not? He said, because if, if I get killed, I want the police to know how to contact my people. But this kid's not thinking about where he's going to be in five years. He's thinking about if he gets killed, he wants the police to know how to contact his mom. That's not regular, man. So I'm, I'm tired of, like, I'm tired of talking to people that don't know how to effectively communicate. It feels like leaders in our city, they they good at pontificating. Just do something about it, man. It's not regular. Wake some people up. Right. It's, it's, a, it's been murders every summer in Chicago. Like, we're supposed to be okay with it. A thousand murders a summer. I can't, like... People getting shot on basketball courts, little girls getting killed. That's not, I'm not dealing with it, man. That's not regular. And somebody's got to be frustrated. And that's where I am. So I wrote a book, just, just, just a call to action. So you let me ask you this, because I get, and I love the personal accountability side of it. And I think you're right. And that's why programs that works with people, especially young people, to say, here are all the options available to you. Here's a world outside of where you are that you put a little work in and you own your your own life and your own accountability and you can get there and then you can change the things around you. But there's also, of course, a discussion about why those kids are put in the position of having to do and know that at such a young age while people in other neighborhoods just get to be kids, right? And so there is a problem with the environment. And you said earlier, it's never going to change. So I wonder... Do you think it's worth trying to change? Because, you know, Chicago has more violence than New York City and L.A. combined, but they invest tons in policing. So they just basically arrest and incarcerate people without rehabilitating them. And they think it's the solution, but it's completely broken because we have actually more crime and violence than the places that invest less in policing, but invest more in understanding how to actually use it to to create change. Right. Or, you know, you look at the the redlining and the race riots from over a hundred years ago that set this up so that there would be segregation, so that there was an intentional like giving less of resources to certain people. So clearly the environment in which these people are raised greatly affects them. And simple personal accountability might change their life, but won't do as much to change a generation. So how do you then reconcile your belief that Chicago's never going to change with wanting it to? Can you? 
I think change starts with you. And I think oppression is very real, like you said. It's a structural part of this whole country in our history. Uh, it was created intentionally. And nowadays it's been trumped up or it's been, you know, these trumped up laws and false media. We don't know how injustice is being sustained, right? You, so, you know, we can all know who's on Trump's cabinet, but if you don't know your neighbor, your block ain't going to get better, right? So I think what I'm doing is I'm trying to rekindle that spirit of community organizations, rekindle that spirit of, of hope, because people are hopeless. They're hopeless right now, right? And so what I'm trying to do is just get kids to, to, to really believe that, um, you know, if, if, you, if you plant spinach today, six weeks from now, you're not going to get pumpkins. Right. Whatever right. you reap is what right. you sow, man. So I'm trying to show kids that, man, like, stop complaining about the, 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 the government's messed up, the city's messed up, these people. Yeah, we know that that's true. But what's something simple you can do to change everything? Let me show you. The people want to be great. And they don't even work on their handshake. There's, they, the people want to be great, but they don't even work on their, their smile. Like, you know, like, I always tell kids, look, do you know you can save five years by reading a book? Like, they're, they're, you can save five if you want to be a fashion designer. If you read a book, you can save five years. If you want to be, there's books about how to have a good personality and people don't even read them. So I, I understand that when it comes to like policy changes, like trust me, like I, 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 I view policy changes all the time, but I feel like before you can get to the, the policy, you got to get to the psychology. And I feel like um, um, it's easy for us to sit back and say, blame Lori Lightfoot for everything. But unless you've been sitting at her desk, you don't know what's, what's on her desk. You know what I mean? And so right. I, I feel like it takes us all. Uh, I think you're right. I think I'm right. I think it takes us all. But where I'm, somebody has to articulate the passions of the people. And that's where I come in. Yeah. And I think they both work. I remember at that panel that you spoke on, uh, one of the other people on it said, if a flower isn't blooming, you don't fix the flower, you fix the environment around it. And that resonated so much with me in understanding that includes the environment includes people like you. Right. If you put someone like a Jamal Cole in, in, a, in a flower that's not blooming's environment and help teach them to take accountability, to read a book, to to want to go to class, to have goals, all of that changes it. And so I think the problem is. And this is another difficulty, I think, in understanding, you know, you talked about on the podcast I listened to going to Cook County and how the media portrays people in jail a certain way. And then you go and they're just kids who who are are struggling to get by, who make mistakes. Um, But those kids, when they get out of jail, are also the solution, right? If you can find a job for them and if you can be a little uncomfortable at a company and give them a chance and invest in a motivated kid who wants to work to get out of the cycle of crime, you take them off the streets, you lessen it. But you have to be willing if you're in a privileged position to take a chance on them. Otherwise, they're just going to get right back to what they were doing because they can't find an opportunity. That's that's a really hard thing in our city, especially where there's so much segregation is to be willing to take somebody that already struggled and, and believe that they can get out of it. Yeah, I mean, the integrity of Chicago is at risk. The kids aren't at risk. The integrity of our city is at risk. And it's not, that's, that's why people just have to, it's not actually that hard, man. Like, kids are kids. Like, they, they, are, they are just like, man, and they deserve an opportunity, man. And I feel like um, there's nobody that wakes up and just says they're bad. Oh, I'm, I'm a bad person. No, man. It's like, you know, you, you got to reach the kids younger. Even I'm not doing a good enough job. I work with kids 14 to 18. I need to be working with them at like 11 because the mentors are the dope boys at 12. So I'm getting them late. You know what I mean? So it's like dope boys being uh, drug dealers. What'd you say? Dope boys. Can you, can you explain that? Drug dealers. They're the mentors at Mm -hmm. 11, 12. Right. I mean, I I was breaking in a house at 11, nine. I'm not reaching the kids young, young enough. I'm not doing a good enough job. My team, we have to do better. Right. But everybody has a role to play. Right. My role is at the grassroots level, at the block level. 
There's somebody's role that's going to be in government. There's somebody's role that's going to be in business. If you work in business, you might not be on 71st and Jeffrey with me, but you might have access to a business where you're like, yeah, Jamal, I can bring 15 kids to my business and we can talk to them about Microsoft engineering. We'd love to have you. We'd love to host you. I want to work with you, right? You might work in the, in the government sector and, you know, you might be able to um, get an internship for some kids that live on the south side of Chicago. We, we want to work with you, right? What, what is the government? What, what is an alderman? What are the, what are the, what is a senator? What is a state representative? You might be able to talk to kids about these, um, how they can take the jump from being an a, a activist to being a, a politician if they want to. Everybody's got yeah. a role to play. Um, what do you say to people from when you hear Chicago used as an example, particularly by those who've never been on the block level, who don't really understand the economic reasons behind the poverty and the crime, um, the resources that are lacking, the things that you write about in your book that you say it's not regular, that people from afar will never understand in terms of the motivating factors for why people get caught in the cycle of crime and poverty. What do you say when Chicago is used as an example or the violence here is used as an example? Um, well, um, the way poverty and segregation contributes to violence is, I, I think, is poorly understood. Um, and again, I don't have any like uh, novel ideas. Like the things I talk about, about my book is not a, um, um, you know, there's no novel ideas. I'm just looking at, um, how can I say, uh, um, knowledge from academic researchers, activists, and, and civil rights leaders that have been addressing gun violence in cities for decades, right? Uh, what I found, what I found though, is that there's really no copy pasteable solution to gun violence in the city of Chicago because, um, you know, um, I mean, I know we always talk about. Well, the geography of every community is different. Like in, in the world, the ge- so in New York City, everybody always talks about, oh, New York City, you know, homicide fell between, you know, 85% between 1990 and today, right? And, um, and some people attribute that success to that city, you know, their, uh, their commitment to gathering, responding to, to data, along with these strong gun safety laws. But like, I don't think it's helpful to use a city's whole homicide rate as a reflection of a city's success at reducing gun violence. So what I'm trying to say is that a domestic violence dispute on the north side of Chicago is different from a stray bullet hitting somebody on the south side of Chicago. So I think that um, but they all get lumped together in our big crime rate or our homicide rate. So I think, I think what's needed is we need to start, you know, um, identifying individual programs like my block, my hood, my city, within cities and neighborhoods and seeing if those programs should be expanded into broader strategies. I think that would help. So for you personally, it means being on the block level and, um, one of the things you talked about um, earlier on a different podcast I was listening to is the amount of patience that's required. And you just mentioned it. You know, there's so much inconsistency for a lot of these kids. Even if someone is trying to help, if they parachute in and then disappear, they can't necessarily be trusted. Why do I know that you actually believe in me versus coming in because it's part of a program or whatever? So it's really fascinating to learn how much of an investment you have to put in, even with people who seem ungrateful, because I think that's part of the issue, too, is this idea that we expect a lot of times going into places that there there's this gratefulness, this gratitude for coming in and sharing, you know, wealth or resources or knowledge. And the people that are receiving that that donation or knowledge or anything else um if they're not immediately grateful, it's a judgment character. It's, you know, we judge their character. We judge who they are. When in fact, what you talk about is this need for consistency and you yourself learn to have to just keep putting in the work over and over until eventually they were willing to confide in you and learn from you. Yeah. I mean, you just, you know, and, and then 
then I'm not even good enough. You know, like I had to hire staff to, to be, you know, that were trained in youth development. You know, it's, it's really just um, kids can, um, as long as you do what you love to do, man, you'll organically build relationships that will help you. But you have to be doing what you love so they can see that you're passionate about it. But um, change don't happen in a day. You know what I mean? And change is hard. So I would just say, um, like, when it comes to working with youth, um, uh, well, no, it doesn't matter what you do. Being a leader is not about knowing what to do. I think, you know, leading is about um, asking questions, uh, trying to understand. Uh, it's about moving forward when you're uncertain. Like, that's leadership, right? I mean, that's, a lot of people don't, they think leaders, oh, I know exactly the solution. No, man, like, I don't know a lot, right? I'm always asking questions. I'm always uncomfortable, but I'm still going to move forward because I just believe that I want to help uh, and um, and I'm gonna um, I'm gonna learn. Like I hope that my um, through my mistakes, I can I can learn. You know what I mean? Yeah. More. But it's not just the patients. It's the it's the safety risks. I mean, um, can you talk about being shot at? Just going to work at a school that you help with? Yeah, man. Uh, you know, uh, I, I survived. A lot of people don't. Um, and the school that I was shot in front of, kids hear gunshots all the time. Um, but yeah, I came out of a school at twelve sixteen, and uh, um, you know, um, you know, the first shot took off my White Sox hat, grazed me on the side of the head, and um, knocked me to the ground. And I thought I was dead because you know, the first thing that went through my head was like, "Wow, that kid had good aim." Huh. <laughs> like I never, you know, when you see, think about shootings, you never. I mean, I, I never thought about getting shot in the head with the first shot. Like, who are you, Rambo? You know, and um, and and then I, you know, hearing rifle shots up close is just interesting. Tick, 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 boom, boom, boom. You know, it, mm. it, it's really quick and um anyway uh, so i let myself down by even falling because i always told myself if you get shot you know you don't want to fall uh, you want to run but it, you know it knocked me out so when i woke up you know with like 10 seconds or i don't even know if maybe it was a five seconds but you know however long it took me to get my bearings back i um um yeah that's the first thought that went through my mind i was like wow that kid had a great shot and then i jumped up and started running and trying to put a tourniquet around my head because i thought i was gonna die and you know it took my phone it took my briefcase and um i just dove for cover and um mm-hmm. You know, uh, when I uh, I heard the bullets ringing off things that were shooting at around me, and when I got to the um, alley, I dove underneath the porch, and I developed some courage in about five minutes, and I came out, and um, yeah, I just you know, uh, I ran. You know, and anyway, um, again, you go through a range of emotions when you're shot. You know, you you go, you know, you um, you're fearful. You have a lot of rage. You know, you um, you never stop at a red light again. You know what I mean? You have all those kind of things you do. But um, ultimately, uh, I remember like about six months later. You know, um, I was trying to help the new alderman get elected or the alderman get signatures for the ballot. And you know how they give you a lot of addresses. And randomly, you know, my first address that he gave me was the block that I got shot at. And so six months later, wow. the place where I was just gunned down, you know, now I'm collecting signatures for the alderman to be on the ballot. And I thought that was, um, you know, that was that was just an interesting scenario. Do you have any idea why they shot at you? Um, no, nah, it was, it was, um, it was some kids, you know, they were, they were, it was retaliation for somebody that got killed in a block, you know, they didn't know who I was and someone just got killed and for, and I was wearing black and, you know, they didn't see me. And so they, you know, it was just retaliation for something that happened to their just random ones. Yeah. Um, what can people do to help you? This is a national audience listening, but this kind of stuff goes on in cities across the country in, in slightly different contexts and ways, but um, what's standing in your way of what you want to do right now? Other than, you know, not being given millions of dollars every day to work harder and get a bigger staff and all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, all that stuff is necessary, man. I, there's no way to get around it, man. If you can do anything, you donate. 
I mean, I can't, like, that's the number one thing you can do. You know, I can sit up here and say, buy a hoodie. I can sit up here and say, the hoodies are fresh, I though. I have one. So, yeah, I mean, they could start so, there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the hoodies, and that's how I, that's, listen, I think what's best is for, for people to, to, what's better than money is for you to, like, connect our students to corporations that can allow them to be exposed to those jobs. Like, exposure is the key. Like, we just talked about it earlier. Like, you know, if you don't know any better, you can't do any better. Right. If, you know, I want to expose kids and they deserve an opportunity to be exposed to more jobs, more careers, uh, more parts of the world. So if you are working at a corporation that would like to um, help expose kids to opportunities, reach out to us at formyblog.org. You can make a donation. You can buy a hoodie. All the money from the hoodies goes directly to the program. Like, it's not a joke. Everything that you buy on our website, 100 percent goes to our Explorers program. So, yeah, buy a hoodie, make a donation, connect us to a business. All that good stuff helps. Do something on your block while wearing a hoodie. That's, that's also, I mean, you know, do something simple on your block. Hashtag, you know, my block, my hood, my city, wear a hoodie. That, that, um, that helps everything go viral. And um, you can create a ripple of hope on your block in the world that we can create this big wave of change. And, yeah, that's what I'm all for. I love that. I also love the suggestion you had during the uh, Chicago Ideas Week panel to pick a neighborhood you haven't been to and take you. You guys give youth-led tours um, through through my block, my hood, yeah. my city. So not only are you trying to fight the ways that are you know we tend to be pushed apart from each other and separated in the city, but also to literally learn from the people who live there what's going on, like what what's a cool place to visit and what's a good stop and what are the places that are worth investing in in these cities and and, and areas and then. Um, maybe you want to go back there more often and give them your dollars and give them your support and, 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 you know, help the city become less segregated. Um, I love how you, you have little, not little, but things that are, you know, can be done every single day, whether it's the lights or the shovels or the, you know, city, you know, the, the neighborhood tours all the way up to the big stuff, which is understanding, you know, the, the, you know, the incredible awards that you've won, the grants you've gotten, you know, the, the recognition that you've gotten at the, at the major level for what you're, what you're doing. Um, it's awesome. And I look forward to reading the book and, uh, I really appreciate you giving me some time today. You kidding me? I appreciate you. I can't wait to give you a hug. <laughs> Thank you for using <laughs> your platform to, to shine a light on this work. Like you, like, this is what I'm talking about. If you do what you love, you meet people like you that help because I can't do it all. Like, so I just, listen, you're activists just like I am. We're just in different mm-hmm. roles. And I just appreciate you just believing in what we're doing and uh, I'm doing and, and giving me a platform. Thank you. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, you would think it would be something super meaningful, you know, because the guys I just talked to are doing such important work and that work matters to me. But no, it's not. It's about something that just happened to me a couple of days ago that I can't get out of my head. And it's people who have a phone conversation in the bathroom stall. I mean, what? What's happening? Just a few days ago, I was at the studio where I do Around the Horn and Highly Questionable. Uh, just off Michigan Avenue in Chicago, there's a woman in the stall having a full-on conversation while I'm doing my number one and flushing and washing my hands and everything. And then I came back in a couple hours later, different woman having a conversation on the phone in the bathroom stall. I mean, what do you think the person on the other end of the line is thinking? Don't they deserve a little bit more than a bathroom stall chat? Don't they deserve to not have to hear whatever the hell else is going on in the bathroom? Is there literally nowhere else to have a conversation? One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this because I think a little respect is due for yourself, for whoever you're talking to, and for the other people in the bathroom who don't want to have their little tinkly time 
broadcast to someone else? What if they have a shy bladder? What if they can't go because you're in there and you're talking to someone? And not to mention this going down, but I also just saw a meme about men texting at the urinal. Gross. Guys, come on. Just put the phone in your pocket and then wash your hands after whatever you're doing and then leave and then text because we know where your hands are. Like, at least with women, in theory, we're not touching anything, but we know you are. Gross. Come on. All right. I feel good about what we accomplished today. No calls in the stall. No text in the urinal. Everyone, stop being gross. There. I fixed it. If you've got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe, rate, and review, and leave the dilemma in your review. Thanks, as always, for lasting today more than an hour with me. That's what she said. 